This is the place for it. Deep down under the city, under the earth. The concrete cold and damp as the stone of a mausoleum. The question is, which one of them shall it be? You, sir? You with the gray hair and the briefcase. Allow me to introduce myself. I am death. Get your finger out of my face. Get your finger out of my face. Take the first shot, then if you want to come... Get your finger out of my face. It's gone. What are you doing? What are you doing? That is not paid for by them. That is paid for by the people of Detroit. Let me tell you something. You want to go right now? Okay? You want to go right now, Elric? We are joined today. I'm not soul of Detroit. I'm your host, ML Elric, investigative reporter at Fox 2 News. Mark Fellhauer, co-host of Charlotte and Dad podcast. The latest episode is up. Yeah, not um, our best. But. Seems inappropriate to mention young people in uh, this uh, episode of the Soul of Detroit because our guest is Rob Wolchek, the denizen, the dean of the Hall of Shame, who's just completed a landmark project on Fox 2 that you can find at fox2detroit.com on a guy who I think it's safe to say is not a nice guy. That's uh, very safe to say that. Yeah, and and what is it he did? He uh, he did not put the toilet seat down. He um, ate spinach with a stranger. What was his particular uh, predilection? Uh, he liked to murder young women. Oh wow! Okay, I didn't watch it yeah. close enough. That's way worse than I thought. And I thought he was pretty bad with the tinkling on the toilet thing. This is a fiftieth anniversary <laughs> of uh, of uh, John Norman Collins. So the rest of the world is focusing on Michael Collins, who orbited the Earth or the Moon, and Rob Walchek says, "That John Norman Collins. I wonder what he's up to. What, 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 what are you thinking, man?" Well, actually, today that we're recording this um, is the fiftieth anniversary to the day that uh, the last victim of uh, the Ypsilanti Ann Arbor serial killer. Uh, was uh, last seen. She was abducted on this day exactly 50 years ago today. Ay, ay, ay. And, uh, Aaron Bynaman. Very, very chilling. Um, these are some beautifully produced packages. Obviously, you have, you have Rob's writing and presentation, which is, is, is superlative. But then you also have, I'm assuming, the video uh, vault sleuthing abilities of Doug Tracy. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes, yes. That old Pops footage is, is great. Yeah, the old footage is incredible. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we have, I have the luxury of being able to tell this story and have all of this old news footage from 1969, 1968, 1970. I mean, fantastic footage. And so we've added that into the special, and uh, I think it's really awesome. And it's gorgeously shot by uh, Keith Junquist and and Matt Phillips, who's also the editor. And I guess I would call him the... Uh, the curator, the artistic director, what are, what are all these artsy-fartsy guys like to be called? I don't know. He's a super good editor. That's what I call him. He's a very good editor, and uh, he creates uh, um, beautiful visuals to my, you know, usually my stories are very rat-a-tat-tat. You know, hey, take a look at this guy, blah, 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 you know, because, you know, I have that, that goofball-y voice. Staccato delivery. Right, and, and my, my delivery is still um, staccato. However, Matt has stretched out my delivery and he puts lots of pretty pictures and he's he it's it's you know he really is a all kind of kind of like a filmmaker it's 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 very beautifully done yeah so uh you hear that matt just 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 keep that head in <laughs> eight 
eight inches on the hat size there. But no, Matt, Matt's terrific. He's worked with me too. And, uh, and of course, he, he did a lot with Charlie Laduff and, and Bob back in the day, and they, they produced some fantastic stuff. Before we get to the bad guys, we got to tell you a little bit about some good guys. And of course, David Hall is one of those guys with Hall Financial, a sponsor of the entire Red Shovel Network shows. It's crucial for us that we have sponsors like this because, you know, nobody else is paying for this, folks. It's the sponsors that pay for this. But David Hall and his team are crucial to our survival. They've taken a chance on podcasting, just as you have, and I hope it's paying off for both of you. If you're looking to refinance your home, Hall Financial would love to save you money. Email David at dhallatallfg.com or call Hall Financial at 248-308-5000. Maybe it's your first home, your dream home, or you want to take money out of your home. Give David Hall a chance to get lower rates better options, and more personal attention for you. I talked to Dan Morrison there and Shannon, one of his colleagues. They did a great job for me. These guys get it done fast. Industry average 44 days for refi. They can knock it out in 19, maybe less. We'll see. Let's test them. They will fight for you even if you have uh, maybe a little problem with your credit. Email dhall at hallfg.com or call 248-308-5000 and thank them for giving the Soul of Detroit a chance to stick around a while. Tell them that ML sent you. NMLS 1467435. Now I hear that David Hall guy leaves the seat out all the time. I, I, is that his thing? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the a guy. Gentleman. That's the guy who is. That's I mean, that a guy. No, that's no. He leaves the seat down. I mean, he he gets his. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. he doesn't bring the seat up, and then his wife goes uh, in. And Robert was great having you on. Um, looking forward to your next assignment. Um, squeegeeing he's not a, a murderer, though. Squeegeeing a porn a theater somewhere. Uh, you can see him. He, he's going to call that the lobby of shame. What a great endorsement by Rob, though. <laughs> he's not a murderer. Yeah, that's right. As far as we know, he's definitely not a murderer. He also, is not a murderer. Also, not proven to have killed guy. anybody or murdered anybody. Um, Rob Walchek. Yes. You've worked in Michigan where bodies were found, and you worked in California where bodies were found. Coincidence? Okay. Sure. <laughs> a bit of a departure for you. I mean, usually when you catch the bad guys, they get locked up after. Now you've got a bad guy who's been locked up for 50 years, 45 years? 50 years. 50 years. He was arrested on uh, July 31st, 1969. Okay. Somehow, about three months ago, I was uh, on YouTube, and I started seeing some of the stuff on John Norman Collins. I don't really even know how. Um, and, and I'd read the book. I had read uh, Greg Fournier's book, uh, Terror in Ypsilanti, which was a really good book. Uh, I read the Michigan Murders book. So I was always, you know, interested in all of this. But I started watching these some of these uh, things on YouTube, some of which were really good. Some of them were not so good. Anyways, as I was doing it, I realized, wow, you know, 69, 79, 89. So I started kind of counting. You're good I'm with not, that. I'm not very good with math. Um, I'm a great <laughs> reporter, but not so good with math. Um, modest. <laughs> you got some, you got some I, smeg on your tie, by I, the way. I, I'm, ad, I'm admitting I'm not good okay, at math, go okay? Okay. So anyways, uh, so I, I started adding it up, and I was like, you know, the 50-year anniversary of this is coming up. So I, I suggested it to my news director, and uh, he said, oh, yeah, you know, I remember those murders. I was a 12-year-old kid living in Ann Arbor. Scared the heck out of me. So then I mentioned it to our assistant news director, and she said, wow, that sounds really interesting. I didn't know anything about it. So I had people of kind of of all ages 
that seemed to be really interested in it. And then we just started working on it and it kind of became a monster. It's a, it's a story that deserves a lot of attention. And that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that we told the story accurately um, with real sources and, and, and in a respectful way to the poor young women that were murdered. That's who I really want to pay respect to. And to the people that caught this guy and the people that have lived for 50 years without their family members and their friends. I was a year and a half old, I think, when this happened, so I don't remember it. But when you told me about it in the hallway, I started reading about it. I was like, holy smokes, this is insane. But, Mark, you read about it as a kid, which uh, makes me wonder about your upbringing. Oh, and you should. But growing up in Ann Arbor, everybody kind of knew about this. Right. Um, I, there, I have a, a relative who knew the family of the first victim. Um, and it's really interesting, this case to me, because is it fair to say that he was kind of the first serial killer of the new age? I, I, he, he was pre-Gacy. He was Ted Bundy before Ted Bundy. Yeah, he was definitely he's very Ted Bundy ish, um, you know, not the flamboyant guy like Bundy after he had been arrested you you recall Bundy would always kind of mug for the cameras and he was his own attorney and all of that but this guy definitely had the same sickness as Bundy in the stalking of the women and the the, the terrible obsession with with killing these women for sport I think John Norman Collins is a bigger monster just by the pure brutality torture well I torture mean, and you know we've talked um on the Drew and Mike show, like he he saved their nipples. I mean, he that was his trophy. Um, uh, the sheriff talks about how every woman was found with something inserted in their vagina. <laughs> I almost said, like, yeah, like he said it the did. way the sheriff said, yeah, yeah, vaginas, every single one. I yeah. mean, he was. I mean, murder's horrific, so I yeah, don't know no. if it really matters which well, one's worse. But he, this dude, is just sick and messed up. It's it's really sick, and you know, when you talk to the the victims. Uh, friends and things, and then you study the the autopsy reports and things like that. It's so twisted that this guy would be able to take a knife and plunge it into a Ugh. eighteen year old woman's Ugh. chest. It's just it's it's so sick, and, and it, that's why I want to make sure my pieces are not anything that glorify the serial killer. I mean, in the first segment, you didn't even talk about him or mention him by name. Um, it's really interesting though, after the second murder, which, you know, he committed the first one in 67, right? waited one year, committed the second one. And somebody said, Hey, the last person that she was seen with was John Norman Collins. And they brought him in for questioning and he had an alibi. Wh- which one are you talking about? The second, the second, right after like, the second they, one, they yeah. brought him in. Well, yeah, yeah. He, they, they brought, they brought a lot of people in, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he they had an eyewitness. Yes. They, they, yeah, he, his uncle was. Uh, a state policeman. So that was what he had allegedly said was my uncle's a state policeman. He'll vouch for me. And, and, uh, and they ironically, actually, yeah. and they never followed up with the, with the they, uncle. I got to tell you, you, one of the things you have to recall is that this is 1967 when the first murder happened. The second murder, Joan shell that happened in 68. That's where they, they questioned uh, uh, Collins along with a bunch of other people. They didn't know what they were dealing with. So the brutality of the murders 
the dictated they were looking for some psychomaniac, raving a, lunatic. You know, I mean, clean cut looking kid, right? This he was, was before Ted Bundy. This was before, and yeah, you know, I mean, this was before Ted Bundy, where it was possible that somebody who looked very normal could be a raving maniac killer. You the banality know? of evil. Yeah, you know, the mask of sanity is is. Oh what, yeah, yeah. What, Talk about that. Yeah. That's fascinating when you're telling me about that. Well, the the mask of sanity is what. People have said that Ted Bundy, uh, Dennis Rader, BTK, and I think John Collins has, uh, which is where they're really these evil monsters and they wear the mask of sanity where they look like normal people. They do things like normal people, but that's really all an act. They're wearing a mask of sanity. So they look like they're sane people. They look like they're normal people, but they're actually diabolical killers and and that's really their personality like dennis Rader basically said that's btk he basically said yeah i got married i had some kids i did that all so that i would look normal and be Ugh. a normal looking person but really i was a murderer i did it to so i could get away with murder which of course his family took great offense to yeah it's uh, like, you know. it's nice to be an accessory to a demon yeah so so yeah so so these guys are just really bad. It's have, really sick and twisted. Did you try, I'm sure you tried, to reach out to John Norman Collins to interview him? I did. We, we wrote him letters. Happen? We wrote him letters. We contacted the uh, Department of Corrections, who were, were very nice to us. We, we have a very good relationship with them. Uh, they apparently went they down. They love and, alumni like yourself. Yeah, funny. <laughs> um, they, uh, they went down and uh, talked to uh, Collins, and then they um, uh, he apparently said no. And I also have... In the third part of the series, I, I talked to someone who's been close to Collins in the last few years, and she told me that uh, John called me a clown and didn't want to talk to me. So Now, has he been talkative in the past? Is he someone who tried to court the media? Because he maintains that he's innocent, even though there seems to be quite a body of evidence, yeah. uh, so to speak, that in, he's in, not. In the early 80s, he, he did some TV interviews. They don't allow, the Department of Corrections in Michigan right. doesn't allow you to do cameras, any kind of recording devices. So even if he did agree to talk to me, it would just be me sure, sitting there phone. with pla plexiglass or, yeah, him calling and, and all of that. Certainly I would have uh, wanted to speak with him, but uh, he, he, did he one, declined. He did one interview with Kelly and Company. Right, in the 80s, oh, yeah. Right. yeah. The, and that's yeah. been about it. Yeah, so he's, he's talked to people. He talked to Tim Skubik. Kelly uh, and Company both dead now. Really? I don't know if that's a coincidence mm, no. or not. Um, uh, he talked to Tim Skubik in the early 80s as well over the phone. Um, but, you know, I mean, he could call me, and my guess is that he will call me. From what I gather, Greg Fournier, the author of Terror in Ypsilanti, told me that after about six months after his book uh, came out, that uh, out of the blue, John Norman Collins called him. So was he taking exception to what he wrote, or was he no? Just actually, uh, him out? according to Greg, he uh, he said something somewhat complimentary in in that he got it. He was pretty accurate. And, and now you've talked to some some real low down people. Nothing on this scale before. Are you disappointed that he didn't talk to you? Uh, if he called you now, would you take the call? I mean, obviously, of course, I'd to, take the call. Yeah. Uh, what, it, what would you What would you ask him? Well, I really wanted to get him to, to confess, you know. And I actually talked to Sheriff Harvey about this, and and Sheriff Harvey was actually quite complimentary uh, to me because uh, he is, I guess, a fan of 
my reporting, and that's a, an honor because, you know, I, I, I had never met the man. Um, but he, um, uh, he said, you know, I think you might be able to get him to talk just because I'm kind of good at getting people to talk. You've seen sure. me do reports for a long time. I kind of... You kind of... You set them up, and then you knock them down. It's yeah, little, well, little, you know, you kind of... Not exactly a rope-a-dope, but, I mean, you get people talking, and then you kind of... You bring it home, you say. So what so, so I wanted to get John to talk, because I, I, I was going to appeal to his ego, and, and I, I wanted to get him to, to say, yeah, you know, it's been 50 years. I'm not getting out. I may as well come out and, and let the families know exactly what happened. Um, but I think that's probably one of the reasons why he didn't talk to me. He's in for life, right? No parole. He's in for life. From what I've heard from the people at the corrections department, he's not ever going to get out. And he's not a model prisoner. He just tried to break out. No, he's, 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 he's not, uh, I mean, he's, he's in the place where he belongs. And this is also according to people that know him now, uh, they definitely believe that he should not ever be let out. Now you mentioned uh, his- I'm sold. You know, I mean, where's the, where's the counterpoint? That will not be part of our great debate today, folks. We will not be <laughs> I don't think debating anybody- whether John Norman Collins should be let out. We, we should probably debate whether he should be let into the gates of hell immediately. Please. You talked about his uncle, who state trooper, which that's end up how he got caught. He murdered someone in their basement while they were gone. Right. Nice uh, house sitter. I know. How rude. He did paint the floor. Really? Well, just, just another example of what a twisted, terrible person he was. I mean, he had the opportunity. It was like, I'm watching this house for two weeks, you know, and he was taking his victims to places like barns and things like that where there was a chance that he could get caught. He really had his way with uh, this poor uh, Bynaman girl in the basement there. So he was probably really anxious to murder somebody, and that's why he sat on the motorcycle all day asking girls, hey, you want to take a ride, you want to take a ride, you want to take a ride, and finally poor Karen Bynaman said yes, and uh, you could just take me up to the wig shop, and then somehow he talked her into going to his uh, his uncle's house and, and did just terrible things to her. From what I've read, too, um, his uncle and his aunt, very close to him, were kind of torn about turning him in, and it really separated the family which yeah i mean that's the right thing to do like he, he had his, his own family's brother and sister supported him for a while do you know what that relationship or are those people even alive now uh his aunt his uncle his i don't believe his, his I, I don't believe that too many people in his family still speak with him i okay. i do have Good. uh one person that i know that's that's uh like a cousin that's related to him that speaks with him still, but I, I don't think there's a lot of other people. He's good. He's not a, um, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's very much a convict now. He's been locked up for 50 years. So he's got those kind of yeah. conways. He's, he's not the charming, uh, prep guy that he used to be. I think he's probably, well, let's, let's, let's go to that for a minute because one of the things that, that fascinates me about people like this is it seems like, these really diabolical proclivities didn't become apparent until he got to college. And I'm wondering, is there anything where when people look back, they said, oh, wow, that's why there were no cats in this neighborhood, you know, or, hey, there's a bunch of squirrel skulls under the porch, or he had some girlfriends who said, yeah, he used to cut me and smack me, or, or he, was it just he graduated? Well, he, was, he was a he high allegedly school football bragged, hero, right? And, he, uh, he, he allegedly bragged to... Uh, a girl that he had dated that he used to strangle cats. So 
Um, I don't think that that's college, one way to close the deal. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think woman that doesn't like that. Probably her reaction uh, to that was was probably one of the reasons why he he put up the mask of sanity. Oh, I learned. You know what? Most people don't like people oh. that strangle cats. Um, it's a great. Point. So so yeah. Uh, it, it, and and I don't he, believe he really college had to had, workshop that. I, I mean, don't think that seems like a loser on the first nuts. pass. He's nuts. But yeah, though. but but not. He's nuts. But but he was smart enough. To maintain this this mask of sanity, that's a conscious act. When you're when you're inherently insane and you have to appear sane, that must take a tremendous amount of effort just to yeah. to put that appearance out because you're crazy for a little bit of the time, but the rest of the time you're being someone you're not. I mean that the energy, the uh, the the self awareness involved in that must just be exhausting. Well, you know. People, everybody has little secrets about themselves that we carry around that we don't share with people. What's yours? Yeah. Um, it's only, a, it's all, only an hour-long show, uh, Mark. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, know, this guy, his secrets were much worse than, than most people. Uh, you know, there's a, a very few people that are that diabolical and sick. And, and like I said, you know, the, the bragging about the killing the cats to the right. one girl— Obviously, at that point, he thought maybe the girl would think, wow, that's cool. And he realized, oh, you know yeah. what? Most people don't really like that. Yeah. And so that just kind of added to his act. Okay, I'm not going to mention that kind of stuff. <laughs> the interactions he had with the women he didn't kill was a very misogynistic. I mean, he told the one girl, like, oh, you must be menstruating right now. And she's like, what? And he yeah, said, oh, that- smell it. I mean, it just was not. You know, he just didn't respect women aside from murdering them. Yeah, well, I, I do talk to one lady that used to ride on his motorcycle with him, and she ne- never he never attempted any kind of uh, uh, sexual aggression with her or huh. anything. But she thinks that, I mean, she said, well, maybe I just wasn't his type. I don't believe that. I just believe that she used to always, she thought it was kind of cool that, because she was a freshman and he was like 22 and she liked motorcycles and he would pick her up after class. So she would always have her classmates like, hey, that older boy's taking me out. And all the her friends would kind of be there when he picked her up. Uh, and so, so he knew so he he'd be knew, the prime so because, suspect. Yeah, so they were like, oh, I want to see this boy that's taking you out. And so he knew that he couldn't get away with it. And that's my feeling why wow. he never killed Very her. Very shrewd. Now, I guarantee you this, too. And, and this is kind of a, a weird thought. But I guarantee you that he will listen to this podcast. He will listen to the podcast. He's actually a big no-filter sports fan. <laughs> No, he'll listen to this. So he he's going to hear a one star review. Though. He's going to hear this. So be careful what you say, MLL Rick. He uh, he may be a no filter sports fan because I understand he likes the Red Wings a lot. Well, it's Bob Page, another psychopath on the loose. <laughs> but um, one of the things that 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 um, I think is interesting about a case that's fifty years old. First of all, how do you find people who? have never been spoken to before, who, are, who have never gone on camera before. And second of all, how do you get people to tell a story that 50 years later they must be like, oh, another reporter wants to talk about yeah. the, the people. I, I mean, I, the people you're that, a charming guy, but I mean, what else I, have you got in your toolkit? I talk to people that had spoken a million times. You know, people like Sheriff Harvey and stuff, of course. You've they got some exclusive stuff right. here, too. And I do have some exclusive stuff. And most of the exclusive stuff, or some of the exclusive stuff, I should say, uh, were people who contacted me when I started doing this down in Ypsilanti and uh, in Ann Arbor area. 
I guess because I'm well known or whatever, somehow word got around and people started contacting me and talking to me. And I actually have several people that uh, also wanted to talk to me that I didn't include. But I talked to people that I could kind of vet their stories to make sure that they were legitimate. And so, um, so yeah, people kind of sought me out. I think there are some people that thought, you know, after 50 years— and I like Rob Walchek, so I'll talk yeah. to him. He's not going to make me look like a fool. He's not going to make this into a tribute to a serial killer website or anything like that. So I don't know. You uh, had an interesting theory as to, you know, one murder in 67, one in 68, and then in 69, the rest of them. Um, the California murder, there's a connection there. Do absolutely. You, do you want to explain that theory as to what happened with California and why there were more murders in 69? Well, what happened? What happened in um, is that he killed um, allegedly Alice Calum in early June, and then he must have realized that the heat was getting to him, and he also was running a, a stolen motorcycle ring. Oh, she was so. Th- so they they were stealing parts from motorcycles. He was a bad, just like Bundy, who appeared to be the all American boy. Uh, Collins was also a thief. He was involved in a lot of criminal activities. Uh, even even after getting locked up, he got in trouble. For right. Well, but beforehand, yeah, he was he 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 was thrown out of his fraternity for stealing. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, so uh, so the heat was getting to some getting to him. So he and a, a friend went to California, Salinas, California, and surprise, surprise, he was there for about five days. And a 17-year-old girl named Roxy Phillips ended up being murdered, last seen getting into a cutlass uh, with Michigan license plates in Salinas, California. And he dumped her, the killer dumped her into a patch of poison oak, which grows in the valleys of Northern California there, which as a Michigan boy, you wouldn't really know what that looked like. Anyways, he came down with a case of poison oak and went to a doctor and... So they know that he had the poison oak as well. And then anyways, then Collins and the other guy came back to Michigan uh, because they kind of realized or he realized he had made some mistakes there. And then so when they caught him and then the California connection came up, it was just more evidence that, okay, we got the right guy everywhere. This guy goes young, pretty girls end up dead. Yeah, one one killing like this in California, it just happens to he's be. He's there five days. Well, he's too. there. Yeah. yeah, he's there five days. So I mean, it's and, and it's the same type of murder where she was nude and strangled with her belt and had her sandals on and nothing else. So was he opportunistic, or do you think he had a certain person he was interested in, and he would size them up and he would look for his opportunity to pounce on them, or or was it just, hey, uh, that's who I like. She's with me now, uh, lights out. From what I gather with all of these guys, they're constantly stalking. They're constantly thinking, how could I get her? How could I get her? How could I get her? Uh, So my guess is that he was probably constantly looking for women that he could uh, get away with. So the first year, he only had one because he was not that good at it. The last year, he got several because he... Had refined his technique? Refined his technique and, and just went into overdrive. You we know? thought that he was about to be caught for one. I, I, yeah. I just think it's a, you know, it's like the Ted Bundy thing. When Ted Bundy uh, escaped from 
jail in Aspen, Colorado, and he actually went to the University of Michigan. He, you know, Bundy escaped. Um, he got on a plane in Denver, flew to Chicago, took a train to Ann Arbor. Um, watched the Rose Bowl. Right, right. Watched the Rose Bowl and then Michigan said it was lost. too cold and, and ended up going down to Florida. Um, which I kind of think Bundy knew who Collins was. I kind of think that's one of the reasons he went to U of M. I wouldn't be surprised. Really? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of coincidental. But anyways, um, but when Bundy, you know that Bundy was in jail saying, if I don't murder anybody and I go to some place like Ann Arbor or I go to some place like Pensacola, Florida, um, or, or it's not Pensacola, it's uh, wherever Florida State is, uh, Tallahassee. Tallahassee um, yeah. If I keep my nose clean, I'm not ever going to have to go to prison. But the urge to murder was so tremendous in him that he ended up going to the sorority house and killing all those girls Ugh. and then killed the, the little girl a few days later as well. So That's I think these guys are, I, I don't think they can control themselves. Were there any myths that you found yourself uh, debunking that have, have lingered for 50 years as you got into the research and started talking to people? Well, you know, the, the, the thing about the girls being on the period, I don't, I don't really think that had a lot to do with who he was choosing. I mean, there were, there were myths that all the girls were on their periods, and how did he know that? I, I, I don't, uh, uh, that's not true. Okay. Some of them were. I mean, obviously, if, if there are seven victims, the, young the, ladies, you know, I mean, chances are, you know, they're, you're going to, Get okay. them, but that wasn't a trigger for him then, because I think I think when I looked up an article on them, they really were pushing that agenda that you know he would be so disgusted with these women that it would unleash this this beast within that would you know I mean it was kind of grandiose. Yeah, well, that, that's that. As I said, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's bullshit. I didn't want to go into any of that. I, I, it's just not true. What about the theory that he had a partner? Which serial killers never? I mean, I can't think of many serial killers that have a partner. Kevin Costner had Dane Cook and Mr. Brooks, <laughs> well, I, but not willingly. That's uh, well, well, you know, I mean, I, I last victim was Dane Cook's career. I I grew up in uh, in, in California, and I remember when the Hillside Strangler case in yes. the late seventies, yeah. very scary. Uh, and I was in, I had just graduated from high school. It was very, very scary. Um, and that turned out to be the two guys, Bono and uh, Bon and. But with with they, Collins, did you I I, I don't come across I that? don't believe he had a partner. Yeah, I don't. Either. I believe that his friends probably were at the very least suspicious. Huh. I don't know how you could not be. Well, but well, one of the cops who uh, I think you talked about in the first part of the series, who helped identify him, was a cop who knew him. Who didn't he go over some of the license plate numbers and he's saying like, wait a minute, is yeah. right. That- Right, the EMU cop. The EMU cop really broke the case because what happened was he was riding his. He was on patrol on the day that Karen Bynumman disappeared. Right before Karen Bynumman disappeared, and so he turned the corner, and uh, and he was still a senior in college. So he turned the corner and he saw this guy that he had played frat football with on a motorcycle, flirting with girls. Come on, take a ride, take a ride. This, that. He kind of waved to him, you know, I, I know you, whatever, now I'm a cop and this and that. And so when they were talking about how, you know, they the, the police had put together the whereabouts of Karen Bynum and she was last seen on this motorcycle at this wig shop in downtown Ypsilanti. 
and um, and and she had told the people at the wig shop, I did two stupid things. I did two crazy things today. I'm buying a wig, and I accepted a ride with a guy on a motorcycle. And the girls in the wig shop went out and looked at the guy and said, yeah, it's probably not a real good idea. You know, there's this crazy yeah. murderer around. Right. And she said, oh, I'll be okay. He's really nice and all this kind of stuff. So they knew that she had last been seen by the guy on the motorcycle. So then Larry, the cop, the EMU cop, was thinking back, gee, on Wednesday, I saw that dude from frat football that uh. on the motorcycle, and he was talking to girls. And maybe I should go talk to him. So he actually went to the frat house, and they said, yeah, we threw him out of the frat house because he stealing. was stealing things. So he went to his house, and Larry, all by himself, not to mention, I mean, he's Larry's 22 years old. He goes and confronts Colin in, in, in a very friendly thing. Hey, dude, remember me from frat football? Yeah, I remember you and this and that. And he starts kind of questioning him. You know, I saw you talking to girls. You know, they're looking for a guy on a motorcycle. And he says, basically, buzz off, fuzz, you know, quit bugging me. And so when Larry went to John Collins' house on Emmett Street in Ypsilanti, before he even talked to Collins, he pulls up and he says, that's where Joan Shell lived, right across the street. That's victim number two. So Larry thinks... Jeez, maybe I'm onto something because victim number two lives literally right across the street. So then Larry talks to him and then he goes back and he talks to all the EMU cops and says, you know, maybe we should check this guy out. And so then they get a picture, take it to the wig shop. And, yeah. and finally, wow. one of the women says, yeah, that's the guy on the motorcycle. That's him. And so, you talked to Larry in the series. Yeah, I talked yeah. to Larry. Yeah, Larry's a, a, a great guy. And he he's uh, sadly, he has a. Uh, uh, cancer like and yeah, yeah, he has cancer and and uh, but he was very very gracious to I mean work us in between chemotherapy wow. sessions. So I mean he's a, a great guy and and he feels somewhat heroic. Sure, it's it save lives. It was a case of his career. Before we let you go, Rob, we got to wrap up in just a minute. I, I want to get your thoughts on what it's like to handle some of the same things that that John Norman Collins handled and how you dealt with this vast trove of material that you compiled in the reporting process. Well, we, I have some letters and things from people that he has sent them. And, uh, and you know, when I got them, the person that gave them to me said, you know, I said to my cameraman, I said to the, to, to the gal, I said, can, can my cameraman take some shots of these letters and things? And she said, oh, you can have them. And I was like, Okay, you want me to get them back to you? And she said, no, no, you can have them. Now I understand why. I had them in my office. We were looking at them. John has some interesting punctuation uh, uh, deformities, for lack of a better word. Uh, he punctuates really weird words. Okay. <laughs> you know, he puts things in quotation marks. Still not a crime. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it should be. So, so we were. So I was reading them, and I was kind of. We were kind of goofing on the letters a little bit and all of a sudden it just hit me yeah these are letters from a killer and i just got disgusted and i i mean i literally washed my hands like a hundred times and and there's just something evil about handling something like that i just found it really uh disturbing and uh i took a lot of materials home during the uh, every night, I was bringing home all of my books and my research and my 
my photos and all of this stuff, I never once took any of the John Collins letters home because I just didn't want to bring them to my house because, I mean, I, I, I literally, like, made sure I don't have anything that he's touched and brought them to my house because I do a lot of work at home, you yeah. know. So I, I, I just didn't want to have them. So I totally understand why the girl didn't want them anymore because they just carry bad vibes. It's just creepy. That's why I don't like all that fandom, I'm a murderer fandom, I'm a BTK fan or whatever. You know, I mean, certainly I think all of those people are interesting and I read those true crime books and and I'm for them. Uh, You know, I I find it fascinating and interesting, but I'm I'm definitely not in the category of I'm a fan of that killer or anything like that. So what do you do with the letters now? I got them in my office. I got got them sitting in my office. I mean, I'm not going to get rid of them. You know, there's a lot of evil vibes in my office anyway, so <laughs> right. I just didn't want to bring them home. That was you the know, case before I mean, you, this I, series. I let you in my office. I don't let you in my home. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little ray of sunshine in the bat uh, cave. Know. Well, Rob, thanks for coming out. Oh, by the way, who did the drone video for this? Uh, that was done by uh, Kent Colpert and um, Doug Tracy. Okay, so so you see all the talents of Fox 2 on display in Rob's series on John, John Norman Collins. A remembrance, a reportage, not a celebration. Check it out at fox2detroit.com. Rob, once again, thanks for coming on, and keep up the tremendous work. Thank you, man. I, I, I love coming here. You guys are great. I won't change my mind on anything, regardless of the facts that are set out before me. I'm dug in, and I'll never change. Very done. Very done. Very done. Very done. Very done. Infinity. Very done. Infinity. Plus one. No. Before we get to the great debate, we're joined on the line by Sean Windsor from an undisclosed location where, uh, where hopefully his lawyer will get him free before next week. we got to talk about something where there's no debate, and that's the Michigan Peddler. It's Detroit's party bike. You bring your friends and the booze, and they supply the good times. You really experience something completely unique riding around on a party bike in downtown Detroit, in Corktown or Midtown, checking everything out from street level. You could even turn it into a pub crawl. That's what my family did on my 50th birthday. It was a great time. This is a great thing to do if you're planning a summer or fall company or workout. And yes, they go into the fall. From Fortune 500 companies to mom and pop shops, they've hosted hundreds upon hundreds of workoutings and customized each trip to meet the specific needs of your group. Michigan Peddler is a recipient of the TripAdvisor's Certificate of Excellence. Only bike in town that offers free parking, a free plush back bench. You know, you just kind of chill out in the back. Maybe somebody's tuckered out or had one too many in the pregame. Passed out. And all its bikes come equipped with electric assist, so you don't need to worry about sweating because you're pedaling just a little too hard. Lots of people do a pub crawl, but it's just a fun way to see Detroit while sipping on uh, your favorite beverage. And it's right there in front of you. Experience the Michigan Peddler difference for yourself. I'm offering a special promo code that they've authorized me to make available to you, the good people who listen to Solar Detroit. That's right. They, they've they've delegated. I am, a, uh, I am in the Pedal Pub uh, Reserve. It's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of like the Naval Reserve, but the only thing we get wet is our lips and our gums because of those delicious beverages we bring with us. Uh, this is the only special offer that the Michigan Peddler is giving out at this time. Just type in or mention promo code ML Soul, that's M L S O U L, when booking, and you receive $25 off any of their top rated rides. Go to michiganpeddler.com, that's Michigan, P E D A L E R.com. Let them know that ML Elric sent you, or you can give them a call 
at 313-744-3272. Folks, we need you to support the Michigan Peddler because they support us. And frankly, it's just a damn good time. So with that non-debatable item out of the way, let us get into what I expect to be a very spirited debate. Because once again, I'm right, and I'm not sure who's wrong this time, but I'm pretty sure one of these guys disagree that we should not increase the pay to our female athletes, that we should not reward the excellence that they have shown us on the field of valor, bringing home a gold medal. Gentlemen, what say you? They are rewarded by winning. They do get a bonus when they win. The argument seems to be... Free shoes? No, they believe me, they get plenty. They make a lot of money. But the argument that they should be paid the same amount as the U.S. men, I think is ludicrous. Yes, because they win. They should be paid more than the U.S. men. Just because you win doesn't mean you are better and should be equally paid. That's not how economics work. It's supply and demand. The, the viewership of these events is growing up exponentially. This match, where the women won the, the gold medal, was the most watched English-language soccer match since the USA's 5-2 victory over Japan in 2015. Okay. So they are... They're rising. Let's let's raise up well, those sure prices. They, I'm sure they are rising. If you want to increase their pay, that's fine. You know, they do make close to $100,000. Granted, they play a lot of games, and the pay structure is different. The other thing that bothers me is they negotiated all these. Now, with their viewership rising and their ticket sales rise, rising, renegotiate it. But Sean, I, I'm just, I get a little annoyed by it. They should be paid the same amount. Sean, you want to keep a sister down? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're trying to say, Mark. I mean, if you say renegotiate it, and then they should get paid more, it sounds like you're saying they should get paid, paid more. Well, the, arg- the argument has been, though, equal pay to what the men get. They don't like their contract. Pay them more. what the men want. I'm with Mike. They're worth more. You really think they're that- more? Oh, I. They sell more. Nike sells a lot more jerseys. More people watch them. They talk about them more. They're more culturally relevant here, especially. They're absolutely worth more than the men. I mean, it's not, it's not really a question, is it? You're talking about the global World Cup that's, salary structure or whatever, but I men think, versus women. I think that's where their problem should be with, with how, how much FIFA pays out to uh, the female players. I, I got to tell you, I don't think it, they're better than the men. And even if they are better than the men, I don't know why that's the justification to paying them more than the men. Head to head, they wouldn't beat the men. Not better. It's just they're more entertaining, and entertaining has dollar value. Entertainment, it's dollar value. I got to tell you, I I totally disagree with the entertainment because I watched the World Cup final, and later that night I watched the Gold Cup final, and the Gold Cup final against Mexico was far more entertaining. The crowd, I I think it was played in Chicago, so granted the crowd is probably half Mexican fans too, was to me way more into it than the final cup. I. I the- but that's just your perspective. I'm talking about the perspective of most of the people who watch soccer in this country. That's that's all I'm saying. It's not it's not my perspective. But it's it's the the numbers, and they're not lying. There's a reason they sell a lot more jerseys. But the revenue that was brought in for the women's uh, soccer versus the men's soccer has only been greater in two years. I mean, what time frame is acceptable to look at? Are you talking about U.S. soccer or US worldwide? Soccer. Okay, okay. Well, to yeah, me, no, you reward success, trendy. and unless that bonus is massive, I don't think they're being paid based on their performance. Absolutely, and and what they do and what they generate, most importantly. And you can say better, of course, I'm not, they're not better players. I mean, that's that's not the argument I would make at all. But they're they're more entertaining. 
they're better relative to their sport than the men are. And that creates a certain um, intrigue and, and kind of, you know, people like that, especially in this country, they like being great. They like the dominance. It's, it's the reason you love to watch Serena Williams play, even though she doesn't hit the ball quite like Roger Federer. She's every bit as fun to watch. But yeah, to me, it's about what matters, what's relevant, what her eyes drawn to. And I think that's been their point. And that's Mike's point. But that's solely because of the World Cup. The men weren't in it, and the women are very good in their sport. I just well, I don't but, like. But the, why does that matter? <laughs> well, because everybody's saying if you win, then you get you should be paid more just just because you win. Well, but no, it's also it's also interest because I wouldn't argue that the WNBA should be paid more than the NBA because clearly the interest and the money in the WNBA is a fraction of what is in the NBA. But I think with World Cup soccer, women's World Cup soccer, particularly for the Americans is becoming something that we can't ignore, uh, whereas the men's soccer team is very easy to ignore, mainly because they just don't make the cut. So what is, what is the point? They should be paid the same or more than the men just because they're more successful in their relative sport? Yes, because they're more successful and because they generate. If you, if you believe in sort of the market, which I know you do, that's really all this is about. Oh, but I, but see, I, I think the numbers are kind of skewed because, once again, what time frame do you look at? If the men make the next World Cup, they're going to make a lot more money. It's because they missed the last World Cup. When they step right. up, we'll pay up. Oh, man, the geeks have inherited the earth. Did I do that? What a dork. Does him wanting to play with us again mean that he's turning into a geek or we're turning into cool guys? This week's Geek of the Week is the appropriately named Stephen Gore. He ran an outfit called Biological Resource Center in Arizona, and according to an outstanding report in the Arizona Republic, here's what you might find at Biological Resource Center. A head sewn onto a mismatched body, a bucket of limbs, and yes, they actually did have a bag of dicks. Oh, Actually, the way she put it, because this is a professional news organization, (laughs) is a cooler filled with penises. So uh, get them while they're hot, I guess. Um, Dr. Moreau? Yes, he's uh, not a good guy. Um, He was running a, a Phoenix body donation service, which specialized in accepting the bodies of people after they had died and and in exchange said, well, you know, we'll come get the bodies, we'll cremate them, and whatever body parts we don't sell, you can you can have the ashes back. So this is sort of a, a discount disposal for people who I guess can't find a better way to take care of their loved ones. When this place got busted, in addition to the cooler filled with male genitalia, uh, testimony revealed that there was a large torso with the head removed mm. and replaced with a smaller head mm. sewn together in a quote-unquote Frankenstein manner. Wow. Yeah, so this guy's being sued by a lot of people who feel like their loved ones weren't uh, properly uh, treated. In 2015, he tearfully (laughs) pleaded guilty to conducting an illegal enterprise after accusations that he had provided vendors with contaminated human tissue and body parts in ways that the donors had not permitted. Uh, Well, they don't know. Who are they going to complain to? I think that's safe to say. At his sentencing, he said he felt overwhelmed, but, but... He was working in an industry with no formal regulations to guide him. So, yeah, I guess you need somebody to tell you, do not sew a little guy's head onto a big guy's body. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's all misunderstanding. But nevertheless, Stephen Gore, you are our Geek of the Week. 
Dead. This was a tough month. It's been a tough month for those of us trying to be independent, trying to live off the power of the sun. As you may know, I converted my house to solar. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, How's that going? My solar inverter, we're, we're generating tons of power, more power than we need, and selling it back to DTE. But then my inverter went down, Uh-oh. so I couldn't take the energy coming from the panels and put it back into the grids. So that was a drag. Then on Saturday... How, how do you get a new inverter? Is that like a thing you just go to Home Depot for? I think it's like uh, the flux capacitor. Oh, really? So it's, yeah. you got to find a doctor. Yeah, find Doctor Emmett Brown. To... Don't don't cross the streams either. I may be <laughs> I may be mixing my late '80s uh, movie classics. Yes, you but are. That's right. Yeah, just don't try this at home, uh, or at my home specifically. Apparently, um, my outstanding solar uh, conversion people are working on fixing this. While they're working on fixing this, the power went out at my house, and so we were without electricity uh. from. Mid Saturday till oh. mid Monday. Oh, and like you, it was hot out. You may remember it was kind of hot, and so uh, I was mighty, mighty stinky. And so this week, yes, we are getting to room 7609. This week's selection is from Heaven 17, which is also known as the British, British Electric Foundation. These guys, uh, some people know them, some people know Let Me Go as one of their big hits. They were sort of the, the foundation, the precursor for Human League until they bailed out and formed Heaven 17. Huh. And this is one of my favorite Heaven 17 hits called Penthouse to Pavement. Thank you. 
So that's 717. Uh, yet another selection here in room 7609. We're always looking for your contributions to room 7609. Great crazy ending there. Jeez. Yeah, I think that maybe uh, somebody had a little synthesizer uh, freak Show it off. There, which is sometimes the downside of uh, of new wave music is, you know, oh, I got a few more buttons I can push. Let me <laughs> let me make this sound like a mailbox now. You know, okay, take it easy, fellas. So British Election Electric Foundation, the only electric company I'm digging. Explain why with the solar panels you still had no power. Yeah, so what happens is the, the solar panels collect the sun's rays. They feed them through a system into an inverter, as I understand it, which then is connected to the grid, the DTE grid, and the power goes back into the grid. So during the day, what you do is you create power, you generate power, you sell it back to DTE. They won't give you cash. They give you a credit. And then at night, since we don't have a battery or any way to store the power, we buy power back from DTE. And the goal is to generate as much power as you need to buy back. Why don't you have power during the day, at least, when DTE is supplying no power? Uh, because the inverter isn't working. But let's say the inverter say, is, well, yeah, is working. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which at this point is, is, is a very big theoretical. Um, <laughs> if you're generating power because you're tied into the system, they have to shut you down because your power would feed into the system that's otherwise shut down, and so the line workers would get zapped. Because while Edison says, no more power to that grid because we have a line down, if I'm still feeding it in there, the, the wires are live. Why can't you have a giant switch that stops you from feeding it to the grid and just to your house? Like, uh, I, I'm on a big cartoon-type lever where you just get to go... Actually, do you have a big cartoon-type <laughs> lever on the side of the house? But <laughs> you, you can't disconnect. Uh, I think it's just because you're exchanging energy constantly with yeah. the grid. So it, it's a good question for the technicians. I actually want to have them on the show sometime because actually i got some real questions now. <laughs> By the way, when we talk about energy... Uh, DTE, while they're raising our rates, yeah. uh, has cut the amount that they pay people oh, who provide really? energy to oh. them. They say they want to convert to solar and wind, but if you if you produce solar power as an individual, they're paying less wow. for you to provide it to them. So, interesting, bit of a contradiction, but hey, it's the power company. And guess what? Power doesn't mean electricity to them. It means power, yeah. like over your ass. And no one will ever hold their feet to the fire. No, no competition. Oh, no, 10%, but then we want to strip that. Oh, okay, we got three shows in that one, and uh, we appreciate uh, you. Oh, let me have a pause for poise here. Five, four, three. Okay, yes, so uh, if you have any suggestions for Room 7, 6, or 9, we're getting them all the time. We appreciate them. Some we consider, some we snicker at, some we use. Uh, you can reach us at ml. Uh, soul of Detroit at gmail.com. You can call us at 313 Butterfield 89070. That's 313 289 9070. You can go to our website, com to hear past episodes. You can subscribe to us on just about any podcasting service. We appreciate it if you rate us. If you subscribe to us, if you share our links, if you let people know about us. And, uh, you know, if you really want to represent, we have merchandise out there. We would love to see you in one of our super fashionable ML Soul of Detroit t-shirts. We have stickers now, super cheap, three bucks each. How can you beat that? And, of course, you can get signed copies of the Kwame Sutra, each one inscribed personally with a smart aleck message. Mark, where can people find all those fine products? Uh, the drewandmikestore.com drewandmikestore.com pretty self-explanatory so there check it out and you know while we want you to support our sponsors you can be a sponsor just go to mlsoulofdetroit.com you'll see a donate button give as much or as little as you like 
We prefer you give as much, but we'll take as little, too. So this has been ML Soul of Detroit, a proud member of the Red Shovel Network with No Filter Sports, the No BS News Hour, and, of course, our flagship, the Drew and Mike Podcast. You have been listening to the Red Shovel Network. Cyrus, take us out. Can you dig that? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Remember to be with us again when death walks through the darkened streets while the clocks strike 12 for murder at midnight. Part of Jan Rolfe was played by M.L. Elric. With music by Don Windsor. Murder at Midnight was directed by Mark Bellower.